you know, life is much better now. It's all redeemable. You can start over any day, no matter how many times you've gone out and relapsed. People think, oh, well, it's too late now because I've gone back out again. No, it's not. Come back. You can come back. You can come back. You can come back. Keep, as I said, keep coming back. You know, don't, don't give up. If you've got a breath in you, even if you're in prison doing a life sentence, you still have life. You know, there's still something to be grateful for. You know, it's never too late. That's really the big thing. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today, we have Robert Hammond joining us on the show. Robert is an author, a writer, and a consultant, and he teaches people how to transform their life by transforming their writing, which, as most of you know, is the most important facet of recovery. Robert is the author of self-help and consumer finance books, including Life After Debt, which sold over 100,000 copies. He's also a film and television writer, producer, and Hammond's script C.B. DeVille won Best Screenplay at the 2011 Los Angeles New Wave International Film Festival. But today we're going to talk about when Robert was a full-blown drug addict and how his life just spiraled out of control. He was on the streets, using heroin, stealing, wound up in prison, suffering from depression, and a host of other physical ailments. He was literally knocking on death's door. There's just way too much to tell in an intro. So let's dive into Robert's story. But first, I'm going to read a few of our iTunes reviews. And this one comes from Lisa S1962. And the title is Hope for a Successful Journey. And Lisa writes, I have no idea how I found this podcast, but I'm so glad I did. Newly sober, not ready for meetings, but know they are coming. Listening to these podcasts has helped me understand so much about me. I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm one of many people that battle this baffling disease. When I do bravely take on my first meeting, I believe the knowledge I have attained here will help me not be deathly afraid. Such hope in these stories. Maybe one day, after I have some real good time under my belt, I can share my own story to help someone else. That is my hope. That is my prayer. HP baby. Oh man, that is just absolutely beautiful, Lisa. And when you're ready, let's get you on the show so you can share your experience, strength, and hope with all of us. Thanks again, Lisa, for that beautiful message. And let's get into one more. How about one here from the UK? This one is from Matchbox123. And he writes, amazing. I'm fairly early in recovery and this podcast is keeping me going through the tougher moments. Thanks, Omar, and everyone involved for making it possible. Really very helpful. Matchbox, it's my pleasure. It's an honor and a privilege to be of service. And to be quite honest, I absolutely love doing what I do. So folks, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. First, I want to thank the people who have sent us donations via PayPal. There are a few of you that still continuously send donations on a monthly basis, but we can always use more. So on a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me five bucks a month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. 
So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me five bucks, either PayPal or by Patreon, then please feel free to do so. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers, the money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. And while you're at it, right underneath, it says follow us on Facebook. Click on that one and that will take you to the fan page. Go to the fan page and click like if you haven't done so. Let's build that audience. The fan page likes make a big difference in also finding the Share Podcast. But For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today, buddy. How you feeling? I'm feeling excellent. Wonderful. I love it. All right. So, folks, today we have Robert Hammond joining us on the Share Podcast. And Robert is an author, a writer, a consultant. 
What if you could transform your life by transforming your writing, which is, as most of you know, one of the most important facets of recovery. So, Robert, are you ready to get started? I am ready when you are. Excellent. Let's dive right in. So, Robert, take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery, and tell us a little bit more about how you help people transform their writing. Okay, thanks. And I'm glad that you actually you said author and writer. And it's interesting because a lot of people kind of think it's all one thing. And an author really is, is one of the things I do. I've written books. You know, basically an author is someone who writes books, whether fiction, nonfiction. I've done that for quite a while. Written about a dozen books on different topics, including a novel that deals with recovery and including the latest book I wrote, which is called Transformed by Writing, which has to do with the whole process of recovery and writing as a tool. Uh, so that's a lot of what I do. Right, right. Now, how do you weave your recovery program? Do you make meetings? Are you sponsoring guys? To give us a little bit about you know where you're at as far as your recovery goes. I've done a lot of all of the above. I, I, I used to live in Southern California, and I was a lot more active down there, to be honest. You know, I was in a lot of big, you know, these big meetings, yeah. a lot of you know, big sponsorship, you know, that I've been up in the Bay Area for the last few years. I've got, been to meetings up here as well. Um, and, you know, the sponsor I have still down there, so I still talk to him on the phone. And I just kind of do sort of con- connection with people a lot of it. Um, I'm not like an you know, like a, a super meeting all the time person as much as I used to be, to be honest. But I do the, you know, I believe in the 12 steps and the process. And a lot of that just really recover, um, in, for my, my recovery right now, it's about really just doing those steps. And it's not just an internal thing. I'm not just saying just believe in the steps and you shall be <laughs> recovered. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a process. And that's why I said it's about, you know, like, like, like even stealth 12, you know, or even 10, 11 and 12. It's like you, it's like a constant, you know, daily inventories. It's, there's always a process of making amends when you need to. There's a process of conscious contact, you know, so that's the internal thing. But then there's also having had a spiritual awakening. You try to take these steps, you know, these principles to people, you know, who need recovery. And so, I still do that, and I do it in a lot of other ways now. So I do a lot of it through my writing, and actually through doing things like this. I do a lot of interviews. You know, I've done probably you know several hundred like radio, TV interviews. You know, I'm writing some stories that tell stories within them that are about recovery, not only just my personal recovery story, which I you know I did a book about that a few years ago, but uh, yeah, I'm working on some Hollywood projects right now where we're talking about like early Hollywood and and how a lot of these people, you know, just as in today's world, uh, you know, there's addiction, you know, there's crime, there's, you know, drug, sex, rock and roll. And I think people, when they just see stories, storytelling is a part of the recovery process. And so that's really how I do most of my recovery is through storytelling one way or the other. That's the best way to do it. I think people get more out of uh, people just tend to relate more uh, to stories. And with that being said, how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? I have about 18 and a half years. My, my sobriety date's October 31st, Halloween, scary, wow. 1997. Great. I can't wait to get into your story now. That's, that's okay. beautiful. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Halloween. <laughs> date. Yeah. Wow, okay. I will tell you about yeah, it when yeah, we get yeah. to that Good, point. good. We'll get to that. <laughs> 
So now let's talk about that spiritual condition, you know. How do you maintain that conscious contact with a higher power on a daily basis? Okay, that's a good one. To me, that's the most important thing. I mean, if nothing else that anyone takes away from my story, it's about knowing that there is a real power greater than oneself. For me, you know, I, I use the word God. I know a lot of people are, well, higher power. You know, it's, it's up to you whatever you want to say. To me, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's just like if I'm a father, which I am, you know, if my son calls me dad, he calls me daddy, he calls me, hey, you, he's still my son. And we're <laughs> no matter what the words are. So, so if you say God, if you want to say Allah, if you want to say Jesus Christ, you know, I think God, whether you just say consciousness, energy, et cetera, that's, you know, up to you. So when I, I'm just speaking for myself here, my spiritual condition is a is a very personal thing it's you know i do believe there's something that's so great so powerful that it is very personal um you know i have like i i consider like a father-son relationship that's why i use like our father you know who art in heaven that's yes. a prayer that a lot of us uh know I, I i personally you know take it that 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 personally um that i'm like a child of god and i what i do as far as how do i practice that other than the idea of you know, you treat others as you like to be treating, you know, that golden rule, um, you know, be, you know, a loving person as much as possible. Kindness is kind of, I think Dalai Lama said that's his new religion, is just kindness. You know, if you just do that, that's probably more than um, believing all these exact details and doctrines and dogmas. But as far as my, my actual spiritual practices, a lot of it has to do with, I'd say, prayer meditation. If you go to like step 11, you know, they talk about you, know, you maintain a conscious contact with God. You, know, you saw through prayer meditation, and I think what I one of the things I neglected with a lot of that time is I did a lot of praying. God help me, God help me, God help me. If you'll just get me out of this, I'll do this, <laughs> this, this. You know those bargains. Yeah. But the meditating part um, has been, you know, part. Even though I've, I've tried it in different ways in the past, you know, I, I used to, you know, grew up kind of in the late '60s, a lot of wild uh, stuff. Went on there, so I've tried a lot of you know different religious practices, but to me the meditation that I practice now is really just listening, and so it's just sitting, waiting, being still. You know that is a phrase: be still and know that I am God. You know, there's like that still small voice, and so just being able to spend a little bit of, you know, some people just say your quiet time, and so that's what I I like to do, and and it doesn't have to be just necessarily sitting, you know, like in a lotus position in a some special room with cushions and incense, <laughs> you know, faint mantras or whatever, you know, you can do that. But for me, it's, I spend as much as I can. I do a certain amount of time where I just literally sit. And some people call it like a mindfulness kind of a thing where it's just kind of sit, listen, be still. So that's part of my spiritual practices is listening with God as I understand him. You know, it's amazing because, you know, we start out our conversation on this very spiritual path. Um, but now we're going to delve into those many years of debauchery and wreckage. And, um, you know, the first question I like to ask people to warm them up is, uh, how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, you know, the first time, and I, and I, I vaguely remember this, is I was actually very, very a young child. Um, at my, um, with my relatives, I think it was like a, a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. And my, my aunt was making like a, I think I want to say it was like Thanksgiving type of a dinner. And she had some brandy cherries 
And so I was back there helping her, and she would like say, "Here, you want to taste this?" And she would give me like a little these sips of this brandy from the cherries. And from what I recall, I just kept drinking and drinking more juice, more juice. <laughs> and then I, I came out to the dining room, and I started like talking all animated. And I was talking like I was really wild. And my grandmother said, "This boy's going to be a preacher." <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first drunk, and I, I actually was a blackout because I, I really don't remember it, but I have been told it so many times that I know that it happened. Um, so that's, I guess, back, you know, like I said, I was about six years old. That's However, awesome. I know. <laughs> but but, for, but my more conscious reaction um, was really probably my early teens. I was just getting into high school, and I was, I was born in the mid-50s, so I grew up in the, the 60s. Uh, it was probably before your time, and maybe for a lot of your listeners, you know, they're like, well, I heard of those times. But we, you know, we had what they call the Summer of Love, and I was just a young um, kid come, getting ready to go into high school when all that stuff was going on. They had, you know, what we call hippies back in those days, and, right. you know, the Beatles were already out, and, mm-hmm. you know, all that psychedelic stuff. And that, to me, is just beautiful, you know, growing up. It was like, oh, and then there was a war in Vietnam, and all these crazy anti-establishment you know, thing. So I kind of just got caught up in a lot of that, the rhetoric and the, the um, what I thought was the beauty of it. You know, there's like a movie and a play called Hair, you know, and uh-huh. Age of Aquarius. Yep. <laughs> and so to me, that was, that attracted me. I was like, oh, that's beautiful. You know, and I, I was kind of like a, you know, I'm African-American. So I was kind of like, a, sort of like the Jimi Hendrix kind of a style. If you picture that with a French jacket <laughs> and I had the Afro and the, I was, <laughs> I was real skinny. <laughs> so that was, you know, I had the, the bell-bottom jeans. <laughs> so that was me. And so I, back to the, the actual drugs and alcohol, I started out really my first real drug. Uh, I mean, we, we drank some wine. Yeah, I remember drinking wine and uh, smoking cigarettes and stuff and just get that little high. And we used to do this thing with our breath, this uh, hyperventilating thing just for, for fun. You breathe in and out and then you hold your breath and you have someone hold your chest and you get like that. Uh, hyperventilating a little high and and then went from that you know with the wine little cigarettes and we did a little pot and then i started taking lsd right around that time so that was my real my first real drug and i thought that was you know that was a positive thing because here everybody should open up their minds tune in turn on you know drop out and you'd really see you know <laughs> the ultimate you know reality this is the way it really is kind of like that matrix you know thing yeah. back I'll tell you what. So let's let's springboard from there, because uh, you're all warmed up now. That was uh, sure. man. When you start out, pretty much uh, dropping acid, you know, we know where this story's going. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm going to turn the show over. Oh, do we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so now it's time for me to turn the show over to you, Robert. It's time for you to share your story: the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life. When you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Robert, take it away. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Okay, so that was kind of my brief, op- you know, opening into yeah. that realm was the, <laughs> the, you know, the psychedelic, the Timothy Leary um, kind of realm. If anyone knows who that is, oh yeah, it was, it was all about. It was a spiritual journey, really, is in in my mind. It was about cultural revolutions. However, as I was just mentioning, I, I ended up getting so into that. I was like, and it also helped me because 
growing up, um, my dad was in the army and my dad's a, a doctor, by the way, and my mom has mastered in social work. So I, I came from an actually a, a decent family. And so, you know, we went to church as a kid, sang in the choir as a boy scout. So I wasn't like this, some, uh, you know, person who had a abusive childhood where I just, you know, felt like that was my only, um, way out. It was really a choice. And I really, I guess, Part of it is sort of seeking you know, to fit in. And so we, we moved around a lot. So that's kind of a little bit more by background is that, uh, you know, dad being in the military, he later became a, do- a doctor. You know, we moved for, around a lot. So I was African-Americans, but we lived in a lot of, like, quote, white neighborhoods. And so I was always trying to fit in. And so ultimately, by the time I got into this realm that we're talking about, that was the, the, the group that I sought and felt most comfortable with is even though I was smart in school, I could have hung out, which I started out with like the nerds and the, the smart people and the science types. <laughs> but then later on, it's like, it's easier to hang out with the hippies, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. You know, just a lot more of them and a lot easier, you know, to, to, to you know, the bar was a lot lower, basically. Like, all you have to do is just kind of just have either have something or, or have a few dollars to be part of us. Um, you know, we just show up basically. And so I did a lot of that. We used to hitchhike around, um, I don't know if you know, California, but you know, there was like Big Sur and San Francisco to the North. I was in the central coast. So then we had Santa Barbara. I was around yeah. that area. I'm from California. So all this oh. stuff is totally, yeah. You're, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know all this stuff. <laughs> LA, you know, Topanga Canyon. And we used to hitchhike up and down the 101, you know, when I was a teenager and just, we just say, hey, we're going to go north or south, you know, and we just pick, because <laughs> we were in the central coast, so we could go San Luis Obispo north and all the way to Bay back Area. Back when you could hitchhike. Yeah, back, yeah, back then it was pretty relatively safe. I mean, I mean, obviously those stuff that the Manson family was out there and stuff during the time, but, you know, we, we got around and ran away from home and just, you know, hung out in Big Sur and, you know, would smoke pot hash drink and so like i said i ended up getting arrested you know as when i was 16 for sales of of dangerous drugs which were like uh, mescaline lsd and things like that i went to boys camp um you know 16 and that you know it was like kind of a wake-up call but you know i was still pretty young i was like yeah you know but it kind of you know you learn a few things i got graduated high school early because i was like pretty smart so i was okay let me just do all this work really quick get my high school diploma and then I got out, and I was was going to go to college, um, which I actually did go to college. Now that I think about it, but I started during that summer after I got out. I started hanging out with some of the people who I had met while I was doing my time, and some of those guys did heroin and other drugs. I was like, hmm, I haven't tried those yet. Oh. And so that was where you know, and you remember Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? Yes. So me being Wiley Coyote, I always had this Acme catalog of all these different plans to get this Roadrunner, which will just personify, you know, happiness, you know, and and the next big thing that I need, you know, whatever it is, it's out there somewhere, and I just can got to just get the right plan, and I'll get it. And so that's why, you know, I try these different drugs, different uh-huh. girlfriends, different, you know, religions and practices. Um, you know, so I would do all these different things and say, well, let's try heroin, which I mean, earlier I was like, well, no, that's not the kind of drug I should ever think about taking, especially needles and all that. But by this time, it's like those barriers slowly wore away to where I really 
was always seeking a different identity and just kind of trying to fit in and just trying to seek this. I don't know what I was looking for at the time. I didn't know. I kind of know somewhat more now. Uh, but it was always something else. And so once I tried heroin, that was, I'm home. That was like back to the Garden of Eden. That was it. You know? Boom. You know, it's like, ah, okay, that was what, uh, you know, that total, like, no more anxiety, no more disconnection, <laughs> no more, like, I'm so different from everybody. I'm worried about what they think about me. And oh, it was yeah. just that, yeah, exactly. That sigh of oneness, you know, that ohm, as they oh. say in, in spiritual disciplines, it's like you're just one with the universe. I get that it, was man. how it felt to me, like that kind of spiritual orgasm. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, some of us get more like that with it than others. You know, some many people who first try it, they throw up, or they just don't really get into it. You know, me, it's like, that was me, you know, so I just couldn't stop, you know, it stopped a little while, because like I said, I did end up going to college for a little while, off and on, uh, but before I knew it, you know, boom, I'm arrested for under the influence of, of heroin, did 90 days in Santa Barbara County Jail for that. Uh, I mean, that was just my first of many subsequent arrests. And then it, as it, I'll just, I don't even know how I can summarize it all, but it's just, it got worse. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no. Take your time. It gets worse and worse. <laughs> I, I started, you know, becoming just a junkie, I guess would be the, the, the way I would define myself. It's like, okay, here, this is my life now. It's like, I, you know, you, you get clean, you know, for nine, you know, a couple of months in jail, which I did. And it was like, okay, that was, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. But unfortunately, I had some heroin in my car when I got pulled over. So it was still in there when I got out. And I had some friends. And I had a couple of dollars. And I knew I could get some money because I would go back to my parents' house. My mom and dad had money. And I'd always get some somehow if I didn't have to go out and do something else. So that was just, you know, off and running, you know, one way or the other. Um, you know, like whether I was selling drugs, whether it was borrowing money, I was stealing from my parents. Yeah, and I did work every now and then. You know, I did actually get jobs from time to time. Um, but I remember working at, um, you know, this place that made records, Columbia Records at the time. You know, they actually nice. made you know, You guys know what records are? <laughs> records Columbia, are. yeah. Well, we know who Columbia Records is. Yeah, exactly. So these were actual literal records, you know, uh -huh. where they had, they were like vinyl. Uh -huh. And we made them, you know, that the place they had those and the tapes. And I would end up stealing a bunch of them since I worked there and I needed extra money. And so I would work and get my paycheck, but then I'd steal all these records, and I got caught doing that. And so it was just, you know, one thing after another. It was just like a total liar, cheat, thief. You know, I'd write bad checks, you know, whether, you know, my parents' accounts or I'd just steal stuff. I would shoplift, uh, sell drugs. You know, I'd have different girlfriends, and, you know, they would do whatever they would do. Um, and this is, uh, and, and what I'm talking about right now, this is just my early stage. You know, eventually it got to where I started doing uh, armed robberies. I got arrested for a robbery. I went to California Rehabilitation Center, which is um, prison for drug addicts. You know, I've been to um, Chino. You know, I've been to Chino's uh, no Cal joke, man. <laughs> no, it's not. How long I was were there. You in there. Well, you know, I did what they call a ninety-day observation, which yes. is like a you know. So I did a couple of months in there where they just they send you. That was for like a, some forgeries. I ended up writing a bunch of bad checks. And I had, you know, a bunch of charges for that grand theft. Um, so I did that. And so they, they, they did the night observation, but then they let me out on probation when I went back to court for that. And then I got arrested again later for a robbery. <laughs> and 
And so they say, okay, no, that's you're not getting any rent. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, obviously, <laughs> that's not, the probation was our mistake. You know, you should have gone to prison the first time. Um, so now here I am in California Rehabilitation Center, which is a prison in a sort um, down in Norco in California. Mm-hmm. And so I spent some time there. Um, I got out. You know, I kind of thought here, okay, I got myself together now. And I remember getting out of there after about like a, you know 14 months or so and getting out and it's supposed to go to a halfway house. And I get to the halfway house and, I'm, and they're like, oh, this is really a rehab center. I'm like, no, I'm not going here. I go out to my friend's house who I was, had done time with, go out, start getting high. And like a week later, I'm back in CRC. Man. I'm literally back, yeah. you know, within like, I think I was out 11 days is my, was my, my total time. I mean, there were other times I would get arrested for shoplifting and I'd get out and I mean, I'd go back, get arrested the same day. You know, there were times I would just constantly, I just couldn't stop, you know, cause I didn't, you know, it was to a point where I had nowhere to go. So I was always hang, living in like shooting galleries, so to speak, or living in vans or I lived in, you know, abandoned houses, you know, and just on the streets, you know, I was down in Long Beach for a couple of years, you know, lived with a dope dealer girlfriend and, you know, it was all kinds of just crazy stuff. You know, we were just either getting robbed or robbing other people or selling drugs or shoplifting, um, you know, or somebody would, you know, just do something insane. Uh, I mean, that's not the, <laughs> that was already insane. It was just always Man. something. I'm, I'm, I'm or, curious. I'm curious when you talk about, well, it sounds like you, do you have any idea how many times you were arrested? You know, I've lost count. I have a long rap sheet, uh, <laughs> You know, if I held it open, you know, because I actually have it, and open, you know, like fold, you know, because they're like that computer paper that's all connected. Yes. It'll, it's taller than I am. I'm, oh, I'm six man. one. So it's, it's I, long. I, at least the number of times I, I really never counted them, but I, I'll say at least probably 20, you know, at least, you know, yeah. and, you know, I spent several years, you know, in jails, prisons, a lot of, I did a lot of uh, rehabs too, by the way, in and out of these times. I would go, you know, to these drug and alcohol programs sometimes, you know, and some back in those days, they had them like the state hospitals, you know, Camarillo State Hospital, you know, that was like a, the drug program, <laughs> you know, and then they had these weird, you know, heavy duty, these family, the family, they would call it program where they, it was kind of like a Synanon type of thing. I don't know if you know about Synanon. It was mm. kind of like a, no. These were like official drug and alcohol programs where they'd make you like wear signs. Have you heard about those kind of programs? No, 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 no. What, that, how does that work? Yeah. It's like behavior modification. These are official. I mean, this is like the Cal- state of California, you know, it's officials drug program. They had them at like a Tarzan. All these state hospitals had these drug and alcohol programs. But you'd like do what they call attack therapy. You'd sit in, you know, these chairs, you know, sit in a circle and then they'd like start yelling at one person and you mother, you know, blah, 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 uh-huh. start cussing at you. And, you know, you just supposedly, you know, tear down your defenses. And then if you do whatever you do, you have to wear like signs saying, I'm a dirty dope fiend or I'm a lazy, you know, whatever. And if you would like leave your chair out, you have to walk around carrying a chair. And I mean, they make you like wear a dress, you know, I mean, just, oh, wow. Insane. I mean, is this, this is rehabilitation. Crazy? This is rehabilitation, yeah. I mean, ble- I mean, these. I mean, I, I know people in this day and age. I mean, I've been, I've worked in rehabs, and I've been to plenty of them. I mean, there, I don't know if there are any at all still like that at all. I don't think so. But, I can't even imagine. No, but look up 
one of these days, if you just get a chance, like Synanon games and that stuff, that's, is that kind of a model? And a lot of them just kind of really cult-like, very mind control and just inmates running the asylum, you know, crazy mind control, uh, MK Ultra type of <laughs> stuff. I don't know who came up with it all, but it was insane. So I did a lot of that. I did, uh, I did at one point I, I got to a, um, a place called Cry Help in, in North Hollywood where it was actually the 12 steps were involved. So I was like, wow. You know, and that was one of my first awakenings of that. And I started uh, to go in that direction. You know, and I was like, wow, okay, that was kind of like a little oasis in the desert. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people. I mean, I was like 20 years old at the time. So I was still kind of early in my stage. And even though I, I really kind of jumped into it for a few weeks, I guess, <laughs> uh, I just wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't ready. And so, like I said, I'd just been, you know, I was in and out, in and out. And, and meanwhile, I mean, I'd, there would be some brief periods of um, not only recovery, but I mean, I would survive some of these times. And, and I actually did have some recovery, you know, later on. And I actually did eventually get into the, the 12 steps. And, and we'll probably talk more about that uh, later. But, um, you know, it's just, it just got worse and worse, like I said, to where I was, um, so sick and tired of of life that i mean i just almost didn't really care what happened to me i would just need that next fix you know so i didn't really care if i got caught you know i would just okay i gotta do this i don't care that they're gonna know that this was me doing it i'll write these bad checks with my own name on them and you know and i'll steal the stuff and i don't care they catch me you know, i just got to get out get 20 bucks you know 10 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever and you know steal from whoever i can and that was the problem with with that kind of an addiction which, you know, even though I've done a lot of other um, drugs, including like crack and speed and, you know, just other kinds of, you know, cocaine and, uh, you know, marijuana, et cetera, alcohol, you know, I mean, all those things, you know, they kind of ran together. But it was like the, the heavy, hard narcotic heroin was, was if I was going to pick one drug, that would have been the thing. If I could have lived my life with an IV full of, you know, heroin or, or, some, or some related um, opiate that would be all I would want and not really care about anything else. So, so what was it, what was that rock bottom moment that you finally, you know, that brought that finally brought you to your knees? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I thought about that question earlier cause I said, you know, there's always that, that what, what, when did you hit bottom? And you know, that old saying it's when you quit digging, but it's, it's for me, there was a couple of them. Because it's like I, I, I have plenty of them where I say, okay, I'll never do this again. And it's like, oh, I'm down here in the toilet, basically, literally, you know, shooting, you know, heroin, you know. And I remember one of my biggest bottoms, and I will say this is the worst one, but I, I got arrested for shoplifting in L.A. And I was so insane. that I mean, I could almost tell they were arresting me, but I couldn't really stop myself. And I was like, I know they're watching me, but I don't really, I can't really, it was like I'm watching myself on like a TV show. And it's like, I'm just like in this dressing room stealing these clothes, like in a Nordstrom's or something. And I mean, it's going to do a, a boost and refund, you know, where you steal stuff and then you return it and say, oh, I've got this for a gift. You know, I need a refund. And that was what kind of my hustle was at that point. Right. And so I remember getting arrested uh, as I got, tried to walk out of the store with the stuff. And uh, they tackled me, grabbed me, threw me back. You know, I, I ended up in jail, and I was just so sick. I was so, I mean, from withdrawal symptoms. But then what was worse is then I found out I had hepatitis C. I was like, what? Yeah. Which, you know, at the time, 
you know what that was. They were just, you got, you know, jaundice, you know, my eyes were all yellow and, you know, I was married at the time, you know, my ex-wife, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with me. You know, she actually did come and visit me and she's like, oh, you're, how come your eyes are all yellow? I go, I don't know. I'm so sick. I go, oh, you know, I was just so weak and so tired, you know, if anyone's ever had liver uh, misfunction, which is with hepatitis, it's a virus in it. It just, you know, attacks, you know, the liver and, you know, you're, you just are so tired and anemic. I mean, I can barely just hardly walk, you know, it's so sick that that was, I would say about a minute. And the sad part is that I remember when I, when I went to the, she said, here, you see the doctors there. And I go, I don't, they don't care. But, you know, I ended up seeing, they have like these medical technicians in the jail and they're like, you know, you uh, you're going to be dead by Christmas. And this is Thanksgiving. That's what they told me. Nice. And I was like, dead by Christmas. And I, and I really didn't care at that point. So I, was just, I remember going back to the, you know, where I was, the cell or whatever, laying there on my bunk. And I was just like, literally going to die. I was like, okay, that's it. And I'm, this is, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like 30 years old, you know. I'm like, okay, my life's over. And I just, and it was like a, a phrase, I, I look back now and I, I can say this, this is not what I thought at the time, but it was, what I thought at the time was, you know, that I really didn't care, my life was over, it was like darkness, it's total darkness, but there was like this little spark, there was like this little spark of God help me. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, please help me, you know, because it was just like, hey, I was helpless. You know, and it's like, you know how they, that phrase, they say, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. But the reality, I mean, that's not like a, that statement is not in the Bible, first of all, for those who try to say it's, it's a, but it's not, it's a, it's a Billy Holiday song. <laughs> but the reality is God helps the people who are helpless. It's like when you're like, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, that's like say that prayer of the heart, you know, where you just, oh, God, help myself, you know, and just that misery. It was, like today, I, I look back and I kind of, at that moment, I say, it's like when you're all alone in the dark, you can either close your eyes and go to sleep or you can look for the light. Yeah. So that was a turnaround. That was, a, you know, one of my first major, quote, you know, illuminations, you know, that light, you know, and it was a literal wow, you know, I, I, quote, saw the light. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, you read about Bill Wilson, you know, story, you know, he talks about, you know, he's kind of in that same thing where you just sort of like had this white light experience. It was kind of like that, you know, it's very much in that, that vein where it was an experience of a, a serenity and a peace. And then it was like I had this kind of awakening to kind of the spiritual reality, the things, some of the last stuff I had rejected, and we talked about earlier, it's like, you know, you have all these kind of, you kind of grown up with the church and the religious stuff. But then I said, let me, I, I looked at it from another angle. It's like, what if, you know, kind of taking aside, you know, some of the, the baggage that goes with it, what if I just got to the direct, you know, what if there is like, you know, a resurrection and a healing and a power of God, you know, that's really heals people and raises the dead and that kind of thing. And it was just trying to go beyond all the actual, even the stories, you know, but just to what if there's a really, a, a true living presence, which, I mean, I, it wasn't even a question at that time because that was my experience. And so that's kind of what I, sort of, sort of that started me back kind of on that spiritual path. And so I started back from that, um, kind of moving back into that spiritual direction and, and letting go of the things. So I got back to with my, my wife at the time and got out 
of jail. And it was amazing because when I got out of jail, I thought she had left me, you know, basically. It was my wife at the time. And I was thinking, oh, God. And, and, and then I was healed of that the disease, too. They said, here, you know what? You don't have that now. You know, you're back. You can go back into the – it's like, you know, everything kind of cleared up. So it was, I mean, literally, like, quote, miraculous healing, I guess you could call it. Uh, but I felt better. I looked better. I was better. And then I, I got out of jail, and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? I have, like, nothing. Standing in <laughs> downtown L.A. outside of the jailhouse, and I'm like, okay, I don't even know where I'm going to go. <laughs> and then I look up, literally, and beep, beep, horn honk, it's my wife. She's like, I didn't even know how she knew I was there. I Later, I find out, you know, I get in the car. I'm like, okay, what's up? And then she tells me that she's now, she works for the, the county sheriff's department. No. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> anyway, boom! Here she is waiting for me. I'm like, what? So now, by now she's a, a, a Riverside County Sheriff. So we come out and live in Riverside. But uh, and so I didn't use drugs for a, quite a while. But I was pretty insane. It's kind of pretty hard to live with. And so you know, I ended up getting a job, and I actually got a job with the County of Riverside and became a counselor for the Welfare to Work um, program, the Welfare Department. And so, but, you know, I was so insane, I just basically just kind of flipped out to the point where I started drinking and saying, well, at least I'm not using heroin, you know, but I drink. And I said, look, if I just drink, I'll smuggle a little weed here and there, I'll be okay. And, you know, obviously I, I kind of quit going to church by this time. And yeah. I, I were kind of having problems and just one thing led to another. Um, and I started sleeping with this client of mine and my wife left. Uh, well, actually, I left her because I went to live with this girlfriend and just, you know, I was just totally, you know, like the people that I was just talking about, all these people, I thought, all these, all these church people are all hypocrites. You know, here I am judging them, but here I am doing all this word stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, that'll point your finger three pointing yep. back. Uh-huh. And that always is always true. I've always found whenever I do that, which I still do sometimes, I criticize, I gossip i complain or look at how terrible this person is oh thank god i'm like this person over here you know and then i'm like okay you know what i get a message from the universe from god saying no let's take another look at yourself (laughs) take a look at your life you know here's yeah gonna be something that's gonna teach you a lesson here that you need to learn because um it's not the way you think it is you don't know everything and um Moving forward, you know, I got worse and worse and worse back on the heroin eventually, you know, in and out of jails again. You know, I had tried, you know, I'd gotten to recovery for a while. Actually, I'd gotten sober for a couple of years. You know, I actually got up to like two years. Uh, you know, went to some of these, uh, you know, this 28 day um, rehabs, you know, in a hospital care unit. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I did get, you know, I got, I, I kind of had known that, yeah, this is, something I could do, you know, I was kind of resistant to it because I thought, oh, as long as I just go to church and believe in Jesus, you know, I don't need that. But obviously, you know, here I am strung out of heroin and doing all this other crazy stuff, you know, can't really, you know, pay my bills. But meanwhile, here's when I started writing too, by the way, you know, I was back, you know, as a writer during this time. So I know I'm kind of bouncing back and forth with stories, but it's like all this stuff is kind of, 
I, my credit had gotten so bad when I was, you know, going through all this stuff that I, my credit was so bad. I needed to like try to open up a, a bank account because when I got a job, I was like, here, I should put my check in on the bank. <laughs> and I couldn't even open a savings account because my credit was that bad. You know, I had like what they call check systems, you know, because they had bad checks written. I was told you about before. Yeah. And so then I was like, well, hey, what do I do about this? You know, I need to clear this stuff up. And so that's when I started coming up against that problem about the, the credit system. And that's when I learned that um, this is back before the Internet. You know, this is like the, the, the late 80s, you know, we're talking about. So it's like people did not, you know, you couldn't just like, if you had a question, you couldn't just put press a button and it's like, here's how do you do this? No, nope. no Google, no Internet. You know, you had to go to a, like an actual library. You know, you, you know, you couldn't even get a Kindle book. You know, you actually had to go to the library or go to a bookstore or actually make phone calls and actually meet people and talk to them and get information. I mean, it's I know it's a crazy concept nowadays where you just kind of go online and everything's right there. But um, I tried to figure how do I fix my credit? And the books that were available were only, you know, you either file bankruptcy or you budget your money. I'm like, well, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, I got to fix this negative stuff so I can open a bank account or get a, at least not a, I even want credit cards. I just want to be able to open up some kind of an account so that I could pay my bills, you know, um, like a checking account. <laughs> and I had to figure that out. And so I met with some attorneys and I met with somebody who used to work at TRW and I found kind of how the system worked. And so long story short on that, because again, that's a long story, is I learned the secrets of credit and I ended up, you know, Opening up credit accounts, I learned, wow, here, I could do this, this, clear up all this negative stuff on the credit reports. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. It's like, here, you can do this. And people would start asking me because I was working for the county. So I had all these coworkers. They were like, hey, how'd you do that? You know, I was like, oh, you do this, you do this, and you go here, and you go here, and you do this, and this. And I was like, oh, wow, that's good. Like, here, help me do it. And I'm like, oh, well, just do it like this. So I started writing it all down. I go, you know what, let me just write it down. And then you just follow these instructions. And then that eventually became a book which I had got, I sent up one day to some publishing contest just on a fluke. And they said, congratulations, you won our contest. This is a great information, great book. You know, here's a contract. And I, you know, there's a book called Credit Secrets. And so then I became a published author. <laughs> and then, you know, after that, you know, more books. And I was like on the Phil Donahue show. And I was a big, you know, life after debt, you know, the expert on credit, debt, finance. And so that was kind of part of my life. But, um, being a drug addict, you know, it's kind of hard to practice a lot of what I was preaching. <laughs> so I would uh, I remember doing some of these interviews. I mean, like literally, like I don't know if you remember Phil Donahue. That was of course, yeah. The early Oprah days, you know, that was I was on that show. I was like strung out like you know a dog, you know, on this donut on speedballs, you know, Belushi's we would call them at the time, you know, heroin and cocaine. And I remember just you know I'd be on the show and I could do it, you know, because I could you know when I would have the right chemical combination, I'd be pretty coherent. That's why I said I worked for the county of Riverside. Um, I was a counselor. You know, I was doing interviews on the radio. I was on TV. I mean, I almost got on the Oprah show. I mean, I remember talking to their producers and, you know, just, you know, was, you know, I'd come home and I'd do these interviews on the radio, you know, where I'd be called, you know, those radio shows would call me, you know, I'd be doing them. And I was like on Tom Likas down at KFI in LA and, and half the time, not always, but a lot of these times, I mean, I'd be so strung out. I mean, I, I literally would be doing radio interviews. I'd be shooting up while I'm talking to the guy. You know, oh, and, oh, and because you, oh, because they couldn't see you. They couldn't see me. I mean, I'm, I'm on the radio. Just like, like say, we're talking right, right now. Right, exactly. On the radio, on the phone. You know, so I'd be 
you know, so strung out, you know, these speed balls at the time that I mean, I'd literally be like shooting up while I'm talking to the person, you know, it's like, and all of a sudden I'd be talking like that, <laughs> you know, that rush and yeah, it was crazy stuff, crazy stuff. So that was just part of my downfall. And then it got worse. You know, I just got, like I said, I had these ups and downs. Cause I mean, there's part of me that was doing okay, you know, cause I, I did sometimes hold a job, you know, I worked for the, the government, um, like I said, I'd gotten into the army and got the honorable discharge, you know, and I was able to do function at times, but then other times, you know, just this, these are the kind of drugs, heroin, particularly cocaine speed. Uh, they don't, you know, let you do well for too long. You know, I mean, I know there are, I'm sure there's some people that can do it. I just, it, for me, it's like, say they say it's progressive. It just gets worse and worse and worse. You just get further and further to the point where it doesn't take much just to, to put you down, 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 especially once you kind of know better. And so you got the guilt thing going and you spe- especially if you had that spiritual awakening at some point. And then you, you probably know people who, you know, you, know, you relapse and it just gets so much worse. You know, you go back out there and you come back, you know, if you're even lucky to come back, some people just go out overdose, boom, they're done. Correct. And I came so many times to that. Yeah, I never talked but, to one person that said it got better. No, it never got better. It got worse and worse and worse. And then I'll, I'll just give you my, my that that was my earlier bottom, the, the bigger bottom, back to the Halloween, because I know, you know we've got some yeah, time here. Yeah, that's right. Is um, I got arrested. I was working for the county. Um, I'm driving around. I'm selling uh, IDs, fake IDs, and marijuana. <laughs> you know, so I got a, and I got a gun. You know, I carried a gun. I remember the night before that I'd gone to um, Harvest Fest Crusade, you know, with my girlfriend at the time. I had this beautiful poet uh, girlfriend. And we were like, oh, let's go to this Christian, you know, Greg Laurie. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, Harvest, you know, kind of like a Billy Graham for millennial um, hipsters, basically, with, you know, the Christian rock bands and stuff and fireworks. And, you know, it was the Angel Anaheim Stadium. Uh-huh, so okay. I got, like 4th of July, you know, I mean, it was like, yeah, 4th of July, 1996. Uh, that was where we went. The next day, you know, I've got my gun in my waistband. I've got my five ounces of pot in my car and a couple bottles of methadone and, you know, my drugs. And I'm driving around on my lunch break from work, you know, because I'm still working for this county. And I go down to my drug neighborhood just because I've got all these fake IDs and drugs to sell. And, uh, boom, I pull around the corner, cops behind me. And I'm like, oh, no. And I don't have my seatbelt on. I've got like my little dream catcher. I'm like, oh, God, help me. Uh, no, I didn't pray. I'm just saying that. I just I just knew that something was wrong because boom, those red lights came on. And I mentioned the dream catcher because he uses that as one of the reasons. Oh, well, it looks like you got this obstructive view here. But the meantime, you know, what were you doing with your hands? And the reality is I, I couldn't, my, my seatbelt wasn't on. I was like, oh, I got to get my seatbelt on. And so I'm like moving my hands around trying to get my seatbelt on. on. And also got my gun, you know, and so I've got to hide my gun down the middle of the, the seats. And so, you know, he had probable cause, which, you know, I was like, you know, you're pulling me over because I'm black, right? And I'm trying to argue, <laughs> you know, try, trying to, you know, be all self-righteous here. But the cop, you know, that was the issue. The city pulled me over. Finally, you know, I get out of the car, first of all. I, I get out and don't let him look at my car. And he's, like, having to call in so they could do it. And he finally gets the probable cause. And I'm just like totally out of it. I'm spaced out, stoned out of my mind. And, uh, you know, I ain't getting arrested. He gets in the car carrying a concealed weapon. 
possession of marijuana at the time. You know, got these bottles of methadone, you know, possession of transporting narcotics. Um, and that was it, you know. So I get down to the station, um, and um, yeah, I'm booked in basically. I'm gone, you know. It's like, oh no. And um, that was where I finally, I finally got out on, on bail, you know, because I, I, I tried thinking I was just going to get out, you know, like somehow they were just going to drop the charges or dismiss the case or I was getting in really some of my own cognizance, but they didn't do it. So I finally had to get an attorney. I had to call my parents to get money for bail. You know, very humiliating. You know, I'm just, you know, my boss at work, they don't know where I am. You know, I'm out, I'm in jail for like 10 days, basically, and I just come in. When I finally get out, I just show back up for work like nothing happened. And they're like, um, where were you? I'm like, oh, I was just, uh, I was out sick. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you know, <laughs> you know how they tell you that, you know, government jobs, you know, you can't get fired from? Yeah. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard, it, it's, it's hard for them to fire you, but it's, it's I not, will tell you. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah, I didn't get fired right then, but I did not long afterwards because I just I didn't even get better than after this, you know, because here I am out on bail now, and I'm thinking, here I'm going to fight this case, you know, it's like, you know, it's like I'm like O.J. Simpson, you know, we're going to have cameras in the courtroom, we're going to fight this, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is like insane, you know, arrogance, thinking, you know, like here, you know, People versus Robert Hammond, <laughs> you know, like I'm some big shot or whatever, I'm so important, like, don't you know who I am? You know, I remember telling the cops that. It's like, hey, don't you know, I work for the county of Riverside. And they're like, not anymore, you don't. Not exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I wrote all these books. You know, I'm the author. I said, oh, well, now you got something else to write about. I'm like, oh, man. And so that was where my downhill, like I said, you know, it gets worse. You know, I was like, I'm out on bail. And I'm so depressed. And I'm so, now I'm sick again. You know, remember that thing I had before with the hep C and the yeah. anemia. So now I've got it again, which I didn't realize. I just realized, God, I'm just so tired all the time. And I just couldn't even get out of bed hardly. I mean, I, I got fired from my job eventually. Um, you know, they were just like, you know what? You're just sign these papers. You're out of here. Here's your box of stuff. Just get out, basically. You know, and there was you know more to it than that. But like I said, I, I got fired from the job. I had like nowhere to go. I had like this little one room, one one bedroom apartment of you know Riverside, um, yes. California. You know, that's where I was living. You know, on the east side, you know, kind of a the lower <laughs> income level place, little furnished apartment. Uh huh. And I was just kind of you know off of University Avenue, you know that area. And uh, I was just so so down, so so down. It's like okay, you know what? Now my life is totally over again. And um, you know, I was trying to fight this case, and eventually they were like, "You know what? If you had just pleaded guilty early on, you could have got like a misdemeanor and got out of here like in ninety days or something, weekends." <laughs> but now, you know, we're in superior court. You know, you've been fighting this case for like a year and a half. You know, I'm out on bail. I'm mean, going to just keep putting this thing off, and I'm just like in denial that you know they can't get me. It's illegal search and seizure and all this stuff in my own mind. And uh, you know, it just wasn't. You know, they weren't have weren't. You know, no. You know, they were like, no. No, you're just stupid. You know, you're going to go to jail. You're going to go to prison, actually, at this point now, because now you waste our time. So you, you're facing 16 years. So yeah. I'm like, what? Oh my god! And so I was like, you know, you want to try to get a 
last minute deal. And I knew the DA, you know, and I can say his name, but it was actually one, my, my sponsor used to work at the, the DA's office there. So, I mean, I kind of knew people over there, but I mean, they can't, you know, they can't like help me at this point. It was just like, you know, if you can try to get a, a deal right before we're getting ready to go to jury trial here, we're going to take a jury next week. If you get convicted, you're going to get about 16 years because now it's not, not just carrying a concealed weapon, it's ex-felon with a firearm. It's not just possession of marijuana. It's transporting um, uh, for sale, you know, and this is back before the marijuana medical stuff, which is what I was trying to say. This is all for medical reasons, but you know, back then, <laughs> you know, they weren't even going to talk about that. No. And uh, so, you know, like I said, okay, 16 years, if I get convicted, if I go to jury trial and I, I lose, which, you know, there's no reason I could win, but I figured I could just tell them how great I am and they're going to just somehow believe me. But uh, I realized eventually, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to have to just kill myself. I mean, I literally thought that because, I mean, I used to have carry guns. You know, I got, like I said, arrested with one gun. Somebody has stolen my other Glock, you know, that I had. And you know, I just thought, you know what, I just can't do it anymore. I can't even live my life. You know, I can't, there's no life. And so what am I going to do? I could get, you know, some more IDs, which they found those on me and stole them, took my, they didn't steal my IDs. <laughs> they took my IDs. They were going to charge me with them. But by that time they said, you know, we've got so much stuff on you. We don't even feel like doing more paperwork on you. You know, so I just said I could just run away, change my name. And, but I had like nowhere to go. I didn't have the energy to do it. So I said like, okay, you know what? I give up. And, you know, for a long time I didn't think I was really an alcoholic or really had a, a problem. Because I don't know if you remember the Andy Griffith show. Mm-hmm, yeah, remember Otis, the the alcoholic on the Andy Griffith show. He was like the town drunk, and he would be like the drunk, and he'd come into the jail. He would just like walk in there drunk, <laughs> lock himself up, and just lay down, and say, "Oh, here's the keys," you know. <laughs> and that to me, that like that's an alcoholic. So it's like, okay, I'm not like that, you know. I'm not, you know, I'll never turn myself in. You know, I'm wow. never going to be where I want to go to jail. And but. Like I said, I was more like the roadrunner. I mean, that was the not the roadrunner. I was like Wiley Coyote. I always had these different schemes, and you know, unfortunately, I was always running off the cliff like Wiley Coyote. You know, I was just you know could not catch this roadrunner of happiness. And so eventually, I was able to talk to my attorney and talk to the DA's office, and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm sick. They can't do it. What are they offering? What's the best thing I can get? And they say, we can give you two years in prison. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I didn't care. You know, I was like, oh. I'm like too old for this. I can't do it, but I don't care. I don't have anywhere else to go. You know, that was kind of my, my last house on the block. I was like, okay, I'll just. So that was October 30th was me going to jail. Well, actually going to the court. And I remember sitting out there in front of the courthouse my ex-wife at the time, she's there you know, in the court. And it's like I plead, you know, give them, you know, I'd already given them my plea, my guilty plea. Now it's like my sentencing day. And so I, I turn over my keys to my house. I go, here, take, and we have a kid by this time. So I go, here, take my apartment, take my car. I don't have anything. I don't care about anything. I'm going to prison. You know, I just gave it away, didn't care. And I went to prison. Um, and I remember waking up that next morning, this is October 30. Oh, by the way, when I walk in the jail, you know, they, you know, here I am all nice in my Armani suit in the, you know, the courtroom looking all cool. I think, you know, I smoked my last joint sitting out there in front of the the courthouse on my way in. I was like, okay, it's the last time. (laughs) 
Fuck <laughs> <laughs> it. Okay, judge. Here we have. Boom. You know. And it's like, here's, we're sending you to two years in state prison. You know, it's like, ugh, give my stuff to my ex, take it. I go into, they book me in the jail and they start asking me these questions like, you know, are you suicidal? And I'm like, um, well, let me think about it. And they say, okay, you know what, you're coming with us. And they put me in like this rubber room and give me these like kind of a straight jacket type of thing. And then they send me, because of not really answering the suicide question well, which I really didn't know if I was or not, I guess I probably kind of was. But um, and they put me in what they call the ding tank, you know, in jail, which if anybody's ever been to jail, that's where the craziest people in the jail are. You're already crazy if you're in jail for the most part to some extent. But isn't that, crazy, yeah, isn't that like crazy, when they do the uh, 5150 or something like that? Yeah, it's kind of – well, 5150 is, 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 is generally where they put you in a state in a hospital. Uh, but it's like those same kind of people basically, they, the schizophrenic, bipolar um, – and just people talking to themselves or wandering around, you know, babbling. Those are the people that are in what they call the ding tank in the jail. And so I got to go in there with them because of my uh, potential you yeah, know, suicide risk. Yeah, exactly. And, and depression. And, and actually, and, and I was on antidepressants at the time, too. So, I mean, so that was part of it. I was like, okay, you know, I'm depressed, you know, because I was on methadone. I was on Prozac, uh, you know, whatever else, uh, marijuana heroin, cocaine. And they put me in, I just remember waking up that morning, that's October 31st, you know, I wake up and I'm seeing this crazy looking guy looking down on me and he's like, I, I, what I remember, he said something like, call me Ishmael. I'm like, what the freak? You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh -uh. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so done with life, you know, yeah. <laughs> me on my way, you know, sitting in the Riverside County jail laying there with these crazy, z z z crazier than me, I think. Yeah. I mean, in reality, I was as crazy, if not worse than any of these people. Um, but, uh, you know, headed on to prison and, you know, as they say, you wait to catch the chain, you know, and then they, they call it what they call the gray goose, you know, the actual, you know, you're there for a few weeks, basically sitting there just waiting and then you go, you know, and then they, you know, they sent me up to, uh, to Hatchapee which is up in uh, the mountains and it was like freezing cold and it was like, it was, you know, November now. And, you know, it's like freezing cold mountains. It's like snowing all over the place. And I just remember driving in there in this grave goose bus, you know, we were all shackled in and it's like the big sign in the prison. It's like, it says no warning shots. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's like telling you, it's like, here, no, you don't get a chance. It's like, if we, see you and we shoot you you're you know we're not gonna shoot over your head we're just gonna shoot you uh-huh so, exactly okay. and it's like when they say get down you know, on the yard it's like you gotta like lay face down you know and this is snow you know and you got like these jumpsuits with these little cloth shoes you know this reception center so that was you know me and you know in beginning of my prison life and so um that was my big bottom life was like this is the end of my life. And here I'm like 42 years old now. I'm like too old. And all these young gangbangers and, you know, Crips and Bloods and, you know, every Mexican mafia and Aryan Brotherhood and, you know, swastikas and all kinds of crazy stuff, you know. And, I'm, and, and these are people who I've, I've known, people like all these who in recovery, you know, that yeah, I know can be okay people. I've had really best friends that were in all these different groups. But, um, 
yeah, at this stage in life, you know, I really thought I was like above all this. It's like, you know what, here I am, published author, you know, Mr. You know, worked for the government, um, Mr. Big Shot, you know, on Phil Donahue's show. Um, you know, I can't do it anymore. You know, I think I'd got my bachelor's degree by that time, so I was like, you know, college graduate. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately that was my that's my sobriety day, October thirty first, nineteen ninety seven. And so I spent that time in that cold prison. I, I did pray. I said, God, this is like too cold. I don't want to be in this place. <laughs> it sent me to Calipatria, which is down in like the Inyo desert between like Arizona and hell. And it was like 130 something degrees. So it's like, you know, that question of, you know, be careful what you pray for. It's right. Like, exactly. This is hot out here. It's like, oh, so, so hot. I mean, 100 and something, 30 degrees. I mean, not 100, I'm 130 degrees. And it's like all these cow pastures. I mean, you can't even breathe. And it's like smog and thick, you know, air out there in these, these crazy prisons, you know, all over the middle of California. There's a lot of them out here. Uh, so that's where I spent my time. I ended up doing a year, you know, I got, you know, quote, good time, you know. And I did get back into, you know, started going to some meetings there. And I you know, I was kind of like, you know, got my Bible and got my big book and <laughs> tried to be the spiritual person again. And that was my that was my recovery, though. That's where it started. That's what it took for me to get myself back in that direction. And, you know, fortunately, I got out of there. You know, got, unfortunately, I got back to in my old little place in Riverside. Um, you know, I met, you know, with some people that I knew before I ended up getting a job working as a, 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 a career counselor for a recovery place in Riverside. I was like the job developer, you know, because I had that background in um, employment, you know, counseling. So I did that for a while. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, the upgrade, you know, was my life from that point forward. Um, you know, I ended up getting a parole. Uh, I ended up getting a job at the state of California after that I worked for the Employment Development Department. Um, worked for state disability insurance, you know, became a manager, you know, became like a trainer, um, ended working up and got married later. I don't know how much fast forwarding you went here, but, uh, <laughs> so you were in prison and, you know, you surrendered. Did you connect with a 12 step, the 12 step fellowship while you were in prison? I did. I did. In fact, I had some friends from, um, you know, my old recovery you know, group that I reached out to, you know, I started writing a couple letters and, uh, you know, they had some meetings there, you know, I, w I did, I was still kind of more in the, the Christian, um, religious phase of it. I was kind of like the, the, I was like the counselor of the, of our, um, we were on a, like what we call a level one minimum security yard. So we had like dorms. I was like the dorm counselor. I worked for the, for the, uh, the correctional counselor and I was able to, you know, have a lot more, more leeway. And so I did some spiritual, um, things, a lot of the, the chaplain types of things, but I, I, you know, they had 12 step groups that would come in, you know, I would go to those meetings. Um, you know, I started back, you know, reading, you know, the books again, um, just kind of turning my life back in that, that direction. So that's why I said when I got out, you know, I, I met back with some of the people, you know, cause I used to go into the recovery places before this you know, before I, you know, when I was, you know, had been in clean sober for a couple of years, a couple of times in the past, I had actually been sober, you know, more than once um, in the past and had some recovery networking in, in the Riverside area, which is where I was doing all this um, at this stage. So I got out and I was back, you know, got back into meetings right away. 
And so that was what I started doing. I talked talk to some people, got you know a sponsor, uh, and did um, you know all the stuff that you know a lot of the people told me that I should have been doing before. Which I actually kind of doubled down on it, you know, because I I only had you know a sponsor, but I had a, a counselor, you know, because they had a there was like some recovery program. They had like a counselor you could meet with. And I was I had the VA. I didn't have any other insurance. I had the VA because I was still an Army veteran. And so I saw that I, the um, you know, I actually saw a psychiatrist and a psychologist <laughs> and uh, a counselor and my sponsor and I went to church <laughs> yeah, so I was, and going to meetings like pretty much every day. So I was just like, I don't know what I shouldn't do. So I'm going to do all these different things, you know, to, you know, to like kind of sort out what's the you know the most essential. I don't really, you know, I was you know, and I, I think I needed to take uh, when I started talking to my psychologist and the counselor, you know, the VA. Because you know, I still had like this a lot of this depression. Because oh, like right before I get out of prison, they say, "Oh, by the way, you've got hepatitis C again." I'm like, "What?" Uh, so now I'm all depressed. Right. <laughs> so I think, okay, now my life's over again. Even though you know I'm out of jail now, but I kind of felt you know started, started going to these Hep C recovery groups. But fortunately, I kept going to the VA, you know, and I and I really just. You know, just did all the stuff I was telling you about. I just did all the stuff I need to do, and they kept doing more and more tests. And they finally did what they call a uh, PCR test, which is like an art. You know, where they go to your in, and it's like it's a kind of expensive test. They don't like doing it. It's like when they did that test, it showed it was totally gone. I had like absolutely no, not even a trace of it, meaning that it wasn't like it just, you know, is in remission. It's like it's like I never had it. Like it never existed. Yeah. Yeah. A miracle, they, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 then my doctor said, you know, you're one of the, the what they call the lucky fifteen because there there are about fifteen percent of people who who get Hep C that it just goes away and they don't know why. Without you know because there's you know a lot of these treatments people do and and I, and I know a lot of people in recovery that they go through this you know with the interferon and ribavirin and some of these different things. Unfortunately, there's a lot of medicines out there that can help that. But I was I was just fortunate, and so that's why I said grateful, um, miraculous. You know whether you know you want to say that um, that it did was gone. So that meaning here, no, you don't have it. You know, you, you know, you can't give it to anybody else. You don't. You know, you're not gonna get worse. You know, unless you know, obviously you go out and do whatever you were doing before, you can get it again, and you're definitely gonna get worse. So right. that was my sobriety date it was October 31st, 1997. You know, day at a time. But uh, like Wiley Cody, come back again. You know, you dust yourself off, and it's like. But sometimes you don't get to do that, and and I I have a lot of friends that I grew up with that you know they died, you know they overdose, they were shot, you know they were hung, you know by police, you know beat up, you know killed. I mean all kinds of deaths that are out there that I could have been um, one of many people doing life in prison. You know with these three strikes laws, I mean I had a strike, you know I could have gotten three strikes easily because I did. You know, those kind of felonies. I used to carry a gun. You know, I used to do armed robberies and burglaries and, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. You know, I mean, that's been a long time ago. But fortunately, um, you know, life's changed. And I got I got a call from one of my publishers. And they said, oh, you know what? We, we're thinking about a book on identity theft. And, you know, I know you know a lot about credit and finance and the system. You know, we'd write a book on that. And I go, yeah, you know, I'll do it. Because I did know about it. No one had written a book on it. So I wrote a book on identity theft. And I became like the spokesperson for Capital One Financial. You know, they called me out to, to New York. I was on all these TV shows talking about credit, finance, and identity theft. 
how to protect yourself. And we're seeing the Dalai Lama out there when I was in uh, New York. And, you know, it's just, you know, life, you know, was very exciting. I got called by the former CIA um, executives to come out and speak to them <laughs> in Connecticut. And I was like, wow, you know, like all these people are calling me. And I was doing all this stuff, you know, these writing books. And then I decided I like writing, you know, so I got back into my writing. And then, but I like stories. So I took my identity theft book and wrote a, a screenplay about identity theft. You know, this is a story about somebody waking up with their identity stolen and just create a thing. And then I decided, you know what, I can go back to college, but I really, what I really want is a master's of fine arts degree because I really want to be a creative writer, you know, even though I was already writing. But then that's when I went back to college again, got my graduate degree in master of fine arts and creative writing. And then I became a professor of screenwriting and taught screenwriting. And so um, that's kind of what I've been doing. You know, that's, I don't know, that's where we are. In our that's where we're at today. Interview, yeah. But that's, and just a, a quick Quick, just a little event. I just wanted to mention this because we were saying, "What's your life like today?" And you just like uh, Labor Day or no Memorial Day, May thirty. Uh, my wife and I, my new wife, I've been married now seven years. You know, I'm up in the Bay Area. You know, moved out of the Southern California area. I'm up in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We we just um, celebrate our seventh anniversary on on uh, Memorial Day, May thirtieth, and we jumped out of an airplane at eighteen thousand feet over Monterey Bay skydiving and it was just like the most incredible experience of my life it's like you know how that experience of when they say be here now you know like Eckhart Tolle you know it's like the present the moment power of now <laughs> yeah power of now I mean that's when you're skydiving which I've never done before my dad was was in the 82nd airborne too by the way and he did he dived out of an airplane when he was he did it on his uh 82nd uh, birthday <laughs> you know my dad's like 84 now so i remember seeing a video of my dad like 82 you know doing his 82nd airborne skydiving i'm like man and it was kind of like the bucket list if you ever seen the bucket list with morgan freeman um you know that's you know so they did that so it was kind of this thing me and my wife did and it was just like you're totally it's not like you're falling it's like you're floating you're floating you're floating and you're just I mean, that was my experience. Totally free here, being here, present moment. Like I said, power now. Uh, I mean, and just that was just tumbling, and you're watching the, the Monterey Bay. You know, this is like the highest up uh, skydiving in the country or in the world, I think. Uh, and that was just, you know, that was a, just a beautiful day you know that we we had the day before that we went and saw the whales whale watching out there in monterey and the big blue whales came right up to the boat so it's like life is just you know i've been you know we've traveled you know we've been to berlin and paris life is just yeah life is just an absolute miracle you've been uh clean and sober now for 18 and a half years living a life you know, beyond your wildest dreams. And, you know, it's, it is a miracle. And the things that you do today with your wife and the traveling that you do only possible by connecting with God and by having a program in recovery as your foundation, as your foundation for, for life, for, for establishing spiritual principles and, you know, being able to be a responsible, productive member of society. It's just a miracle, man. Yeah, it is. Life is a miracle. That's that's the thing. And the reality is, it's it's available for everybody. I mean, life. I think Helen Keller says life's you know it's a daring adventure or nothing. I mean, you have a choice 
too, you know, never too late, you know, to, just to start over and, and just even those little moments, you know, it doesn't have to be all dramatic, you know, you don't have to like jump out of airplanes or fly to Paris, you know, to have a, a good life. And you live down in Costa Rica, which is, is on our, our list. So that would be like the place to live, you know, eventually. So it is an amazing be surprise that we could knock it on you. Let me know. Give me a heads I will. up. I will, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll keep, yeah. Warn you if you're coming down that way. All right. Well, I'll tell you Beautiful. what, um, Robert, you've like, got an incredible story. Uh, again, it's, it's one of those things where you listen to someone share their story and you wonder how they made it through this war zone, this, this absolute train wreck, um, into a person that lives a life that you do today. Um, you know, true testament to, to your higher power. So what I like to do is as we close up the interview is I like to, to, to close up for the newcomer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Okay. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I would say the biggest things was, was like pride and stubbornness, you know, thinking that I knew it all. Like somebody would say something to me and I go, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know, yeah. yeah. I know, I know, I know. I know nothing. <laughs> that's the thing is, is, is that pride? I mean, I, I know a lot of times we, you know, we think of pride, self-esteem as like as positives, and and they can be as far as a sense of dignity or or feeling, you know, okay about who you are. However, that know-it-allness, which I still suffer from quite often, uh, it doesn't let you learn and won't let you change because you know you think you know it's like the wily coyote you know you think that's your typical know-it-all he thinks he knows everything he's got his white his acne catalog and it's like i'm gonna get this roadrunner but he's not gonna do it he's not gonna do it that's right <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing correct correct and number two at what point did you have that spiritual awakening that aha moment in recovery when you accept that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Oh, boy. I think the first time I really had a real hope was when I first went to a 12-step meeting. I was, like, I was actually about like 20, and I went to like this place called Cry Help down in uh, North Hollywood. And they exposed me to that whole realm, which I didn't know about because I told you about those other kind of recovery, which is more of the attack therapy. And I first time I went to those meetings, I was like, Oh, wow. This is, you know, like a lot different than the churches that I'd gone to, a lot different than the, the attack group therapies. There's a hope here. There's a, there's a, a real genuine affection, you know, people, you know, sharing with each other. And I really felt that that was, there was a light there. Um, and I knew, um, like I said, I've had many, um, those hitting bottoms where I felt like I was powerless. So I can't just name the one, you know, that, that was one. Um, but other ones were like I talked about before in '87, where I was just kind of alone in the dark, and said you can like kind of give up or look to the light. And I, I believe there's a light that's in us, you know, whether you want to call that God or the light of it's there if we just sit still long enough and and listen and look for it. Absolutely, absolutely. There is just, and I remember like you were like you were talking about during your share. It's like the Bill Wilson experience. Where you know he's in the he's in the hospital and the 
the light shining through and you get that yeah. that moment where you have a, a godlike experience that you can't explain but it was that in that moment that you felt the presence of god for the first time and you ran with it and and it's yeah. it's a it's a beautiful experience um for anyone who's experienced it so number 3 do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Uh, well, you know, I mentioned the, the varieties of religious experience. Um, that's a really good book. It's, it's not an easy read for a lot of people. Uh, that's one. Um, and actually, you know, the, you know, I mentioned like the Gospels, you know, I mean, those real, those real spiritual stories. I mean, not, not for everyone to, to, to necessarily convert to a specific religion, but, you know, those stories of like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those kind of gospels where there's actual like healing, uh, miracles and just, you know, reading them, even if you just do it as a literature and just say, that's a story, whether I want to believe it or not, just know that, you know, there's something that's deeper. Those, those are some of the ones I would suggest. There's a couple other ones. Um, I think probably more for maybe more mainstream, um, not necessarily as religious or spiritual. Um, the road less traveled by M. Scott Peck. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah. Great book. Life is difficult is a starting point in that one, where you just kind of confront reality. That's light, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Road Less Traveled, uh, Power of Now. We talked about briefly. Um, yeah, I didn't totally. read that. Yeah, I didn't read that in early recovery, but I, I read it. And I thought that's you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we can talk about the twelve step books, you know, which I'm sure most people already are aware of those. Um, another one here's one that probably most people have never read, never heard of. I read recently. It's a little book you kind of have to look for. You can probably find it on the internet, but it's called A Guide to True Peace. A Guide to True Peace. And it's a little book, and it's just about real kind of a spiritual um, practicing. You know, it's kind of like what I was talking about before, just kind of like the inner prayer life. You know, the, and you know, you look at like what they call the prayer of the heart. Um, there's a lot of inner work that a person can do just wherever you are. It doesn't have to, you know, you have to join an organization necessarily to to practice some of these just very spiritual ways of you know taking your yourself to the next level so those are the books i'd probably recommend great suggestions i love it and so number four what is the best suggestion you have ever received you know the biggest one is is i'd really talk about is this gratitude (laughs) you know you know they call you know sort of cliche attitude or gratitude it's easy to say it you know, oh yeah, just be grateful. But it's like we're really not always that grateful. And one of the things one of my sponsors, when I talked about a lot, he says, you know, I complain, you know, about my life. You know, it's like, oh poor me. It's like I don't have a girlfriend, or oh poor me. It's like I don't have that much money in my bank account. I got bills to pay. Blah blah blah. And he would tell me, you know what? Here's what I what you, what you should do. You should go down to the uh, the prison there and find one of these guys that are on death row or um, doing a life sentence, and tell them about how bad your life is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> them too. Feel sorry for you, or, or find a guy, somebody in the hospital, like with a terminal disease, or or somebody like in a wheelchair that's like a, a quadriplegic, and uh, talk to them about your problems and tell them, you know, how how bad you've got it. Oh. And it's like okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's like that was like a little wake up call, you know. Just you put it in perspective, and it's not to like find people look worse than you and look. Down because I, I do know. For example, we I had a, an opportunity to go to to uh, Louisiana uh, after Katrina, you know, Hurricane Katrina, right? Which is having problems out in Baton Rouge now. I mean, there's there's always things like that going on. I had an opportunity 
which I hadn't planned on. I wasn't really thinking I'm the kind of missionary type of guy, but uh, it was an, an op- a situation where I was in a conversation with someone, and someone says, yeah, we're going to get some guys and go down there. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what? Who just said that? And I was, <laughs> and then before I knew it, I'm down there in New Orleans, in like a weeks after Hurricane Katrina, you know, I mean, after, you know, and I was cleaning up, and just being down there, um, and we come back, you know, on the plane, you know, leaving there, you know, and it's like right before Thanksgiving and, and the people in the airport, are like, you know, why are you guys down here to help? Thanks so much. And it was just like, you know, we were glad to be able to do it. And I went home for Thanksgiving, you know, that week, you know, that week. And it was just, that was a different Thanksgiving after seeing that. And the people down there were so grateful too, you know, and just knowing that, you know, here your whole house just got wiped out, you know, literally. And, you know, you're grateful that somebody's giving you some water you know, some T-shirts, you know, and some food. No so, question about it. You know, it, it, yeah, that attitude of gratitude, it's it's key. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely just, key. Always try to keep, be grateful every day for something, you know, just, you know, your wife, your family, your life, your health. There's always something that you've got going, you know, no matter how bad it is, is you've got something that's better than than you've had it in the past or that other people have. And it's not even a comparison thing, but it's just – just be glad because even those bad things, what I found is like, I even think back in my life, I go, you know, if it wasn't for some of those bad situations, I wouldn't, I would we will, well, number one, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I wouldn't be able to help other people you know, share the story. Cause it's like, Oh, well, you're, you don't really know what we're, you're talking about. You don't know what it's like, you know, to be a drug addict. You, know, you can't help anybody. But I've been able to talk to people about, you know, recovery. You know, I've been able to talk to them about writing their stories because I've, you know, had a little bit of a story to tell and it's been a healing process and a journey. And so I've shown other people how, you know, taught, you know, I've been a professor of creative writing and screenwriting and I've been able to make movies and write books. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for, like I say, even when I had the bad credit, you know, if it wasn't for that bad credit, I wouldn't have, like, looked at here, how do you fix your credit? Because it's like a problem, you know, created a solution or an opportunity for a solution. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. And then finally, if you had, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Well, the biggest thing I would say is it's never too late to start over. I mean, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, it's too late for me, you know, which I, I used to say that all the time. You know, I mean, by the time I finally got sober this last time, this, you know, this time, you know, I was 42. You know, I've been in and out of jails most of my life. You know, I mean, I'd lost, you know, my, my, you know, my marriage and, you know, my son was estranged and my family was just disappointed in me. Uh, I mean, my health, you know, I thought here I've got hepatitis, hepatitis C, I'm going to die of liver cancer. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. So, you know, life is much better now. It's all redeemable. You can start over any day, no matter how many times you've gone out and relapsed. People think, oh, well, it's too late now because I've gone back out again. No, it's not. Come back. You can come back. You can come back. You can come back. Keep as I say, keep coming back. You know, don't don't give up. If you've got a breath in you, even if you're in prison doing a life sentence, you still have life. You know, there's still something to be grateful for. You know, it's never too late. That's really the big thing. As long as you have breath, you have life. And and I would I'll kind of add to that. Just look to that light within yourself. You know, there's a light there. You know, the image of God that you're created in. That's who you are. That's in you. That's deep down. You got to sometimes be still for a while, and look. You know, when it's all dark. You know, look for that light. Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. Wow. Robert, thank you so much for those wonderful suggestions. And thank you so much for joining us today. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for all you, all you do. You're oh, awesome. Man, I love Thanks it. Thanks to thank everyone you. listening. Folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.